welcome to this, the 12th in a rambling series, Talking Terminal. Today, slightly different an approach in the podcast as rather than hearing me drone on all the time, I hope you'll enjoy firstly a tantalising discussion and marvellous story from my friend Bev, followed by a beautiful, thoughtful book review and some commentary about what it's like to live in Cheltenham from my very, very long-standing friend Hilary, who rocked me in my pram when I was a baby. I do hope you enjoy. Thankfully, no music from me this time, but there will be a few comments about living around the park before we finish. Any views you've got, please email me at jeremy at talkingterminal.com and do enjoy yourselves. So, to Bev and the marvellous story that I've trailed. I've known Bev since I was at university. She was a friend of my cousin's at a college in London and was contemplating studying at Lancaster, where I thoroughly enjoyed four years. All of them drinking, not really working. And my cousin persuaded me to look after Bev when she was coming up to look around the university, basically. I was already there and did what anybody would do, which is looked after her and took her to the college bar. We had a thoroughly good time. And as you'll discover in this podcast, Bev has an enormous enthusiasm for life and engages with it in a loud and very clear way. I recall going back to see Joyce and said to her in our room, I'd looked after Bev well, and by the way, she has a laugh that can stop a bar. And indeed, that was the case. When Bev laughed, the whole bar stopped and then enjoyed her enjoyment. It was a wonderful machine gun attack on everybody, meant with the best possible intent. Anyway, you'll hear some of that. Sadly, it's ameliorated over time, but you'll hear some of her enthusiasm in the story that she tells. Bev, tell me what the process is that you got involved with. You have a test and then within 24 hours, if it's negative, they simply email you. And if it's positive, they phone you. So in your... Because then they want to track and trace. Talk, talk to you about it. So in that... So you got a phone call. Tell us more about that phone call. OK, so I have test number one. And... By the time I'd returned home from the test centre, which was only a few minutes, I'd received two missed calls on my phone. And I actually thought it couldn't possibly be uh, from that, you know. Um, and uh, I listened to the messages, and there were uh, both messages from a woman called Anna Brooks. Yeah, sounds who, a good name. Yeah. Yeah, who said... Um, the first message said, please call me back on this number. Uh, the second message said, um, this is very urgent. I need you to call me back on my direct line on this number as soon as possible. I'm afraid we're unable to call you again. OK, that so, would have had my uh, exam. I'd received both of these messages slightly panicky. Well, well I'd, get, I'd, I'd be anxious. I'd, I'd be anxious when you get exactly. two calls like I was that. anxious and panicky, thinking that obviously because they phoned, they've not emailed, and because it's been so fast, 
obviously this is going to be a positive covid result and uh, i was really panicky so telephoned the number immediately and asked to speak to anna brooks and the first person i spoke to said uh, you must have the wrong number there's no anna brooks here and i and i was very insistent and said there absolutely must be i've got her name on both of my um, missed messages and uh, you know I was very very insistent that they try to find this um, missing person and after much persuasion they went off and consulted with other members of the team and came back and said no there is still no such person now that Bev that I'm assuming for most people would be the end of that but I know what you're like so you will have been you'll have another go at this won't you I absolutely will you know me very well good on you (laughs) so what did what happened um so I called again and this time I spoke to somebody else and she then said Anna Brooks is at lunch oh Anna Brooks we'll get her to call you back right this is how they deal this is how they deal with strange callers yes indeed so (laughs) I still remained undeterred because I thought they've just fogged me off and I waited a few minutes and then called back again. I could feel the exasperation in the woman's voice and the rest of the line. And eventually she said, I'll put you through to another department. I was obviously by this stage the patient from hell. I love it. I love it. You're never the patient from hell. <laughs> Frightening, maybe. And they put me through to another department. And uh, basically, I had two teams of people looking for this mystery woman called Anna Brooks. After considerably more time and more people were involved in this search. A track and trace, Bev. A track and trace, it sounds like. Indeed it was. Track and trace of the mystery woman. Eventually... A rather bright young thing, a nurse, I think, came on the phone and said, do you think there's any chance you might have misheard her? She said, do you think she might have said, it's Addenbrooks here? The hospital local to you. My very own local. Oh, how did you feel, Bev? Um, wishing the floor would open up and swallow. Because I suffer quite a lot from some very strange stomach movements, is as far as I'll go. And let me tell you, (laughs) that would have made me have one. Indeed, indeed. I was so acutely embarrassed. I do have a bit of a hearing issue, but um, I hadn't realised it was quite as bad as that. Splint. It's a great story. So you, broadly speaking, if I summed this up, you heard a sort of fuzzy, fumbled couple of voice messages, both of which were from Anna... Anna Brooks, and actually they were from Adam Brooks. <laughs> Indeed. Probably you unconsciously didn't want to hear from Adam Brooks. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm sure you're right. And, in, and indeed, to just finish that story, it wasn't to tell me that the COVID test was positive. It was simply to tell me that because I still had some persistent symptoms, would I go and get a second test? Because that indeed is the university protocol. But interestingly, the filter of anxiety may have an impact on what we hear as well. Well, isn't that interesting? What's important is you didn't have covid 19 and you have had a chest infection and you still look a bit on the wan side but i'm delighted you're able to tell that story thank you bev just to reassure anybody who was concerned i wasn't physically in bev's presence when i recorded that we we did that over the internet but i could see her on a video hence i knew she was a bit pale so moving from pale to the incredibly colorful I had a marvellous conversation with Hilary about a great book. So thanks, Hilary, so much for joining the Astounding Talking Terminal podcast. You can aid sleep, which is what I do. <laughs> um, and I, you and I talked beforehand about a book yep. that you'd been tantalised by. And I said, lovely, tantalise people, not just me. So tell us the name of the book, its author, and what you love about it. Please. Okay. This is a, okay. This is a book by an American woman called Sarah Kenzor. The book's called Hiding in Plain Sight. Um, Hiding in Plain Sight. Great name. Absolutely. And it's about how Trump came to be in the White House and why, if and when he goes away, what he brought there won't, uh, or not very easily. Um, there are a few things that are really interesting about this book. One is her. She's um, a journalist. She's an anthropologist by background um, and an academic. Her specialism and her PhD thesis was about the growth of authoritarian regimes in post-Soviet uh, Russia, with mm-hmm. a particular interest in Uzbekistan. She's, in, you never know in this day and age whether this is a kind of a, a Twitter phenomenon or not, but she's generally credited with having been one of the first people very publicly to say that Trump would win um, back in uh, 2015. And, oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. And the, the, the kind of the, the root of what she's been writing is in a, a, a group of essays which was published not this year, which is when Hiding in Plain Sight was um, published but in 2018. And it's called The Views from Flyover Country. So the middle of the US rather than the, um, the coasts that we... Um, the worrying so much about we hear so much about and basically she describes people who fly the country as forgotten people so what she says in a in a nutshell in this book is that it has the white house the current white house has all the hallmarks of a nascent authoritarian regime and in some respects not so nascent <laughs> Um, And by authoritarian, she means sort of appealing to the populace, not uh, wanting a rule of law that doesn't suit them, etc. Worse. Worse. Um, Worse. I know, I know. It's it's an interesting read. I want to come on to something. I've got three points that... um, that, um, Do I mean three? No, four. Um, the The first point is that it covers not just the immediate past and things like The Apprentice, but the last 40 years, so since the late 70s. So names that we're now familiar with, if you're interested in American politics, as I have been 
being a child of the Vietnam generation, but um, the Vietnam War rather, than I am. Um, but names that are familiar today, like Manafort, uh, Michael Cohen, those sorts of things, they were all there 40 years ago. Manafort moved into Trump Tower in 2006 and he's known Trump for 30 years. Um, and not only were they there, but they have deep roots and connections to money, Russia, and the mafia. Not to sound credulous about that, but it's well-researched, well-presented, and well-supported, these really deep names. The second thing that just struck me about reading the book was she is absolutely scathing about Robert Mueller. Um, so where people watching American politics might be impressed by this slow, careful, and very constitutional investigation into the links between uh, in, in, into the links between Trump and Russia and the Russian influence on the American uh, election. She cuts through all of that and says, this slow, ponderous statesman-like stuff is rubbish. He was the bloody director of the FBI for the six years previously. What was he doing? What was he playing at? And clearly, it's in his best interest for whatever he uncovered, if he uncovered anything, not to say too much about it. There were a number of places in the book where what I'd been thinking got shifted through several degrees. Third point. And, and the third thing that really struck me about this book was the unapologetic language. She always refers to the White House as being a transnational crime syndicate or an international crime conspiracy. She has, she's completely unapologetic about that. And her publisher describes this as what she calls, uh, what they call a signature and celebrated style, which sometimes I think is code for over the top or shrill. And in some ways, the language put me off a bit. But it just made me think, were there people writing in a similar way in 1933 and saying question. equivalent, the Cossacks are coming? Or is that what they say when journalists and academics in Turkey or in Syria or in Saudi are being imprisoned or killed? And then another thing completely separately happens. One of my long time ago mates in Ellis in Australia sent me something where he said, I really don't like Don, John Pilger. Um, I can't bear the way he bangs on about, you know, being a commie and, you know, conspiracies and what have you. He said, but I've just read this article and thought to myself, what if this is true? Um, mm. it's, about, it's about international finance. And so in these days of trying to find trusted sources and trusted commentators about world affairs, people upon whose judgment you can rely. I'm kind of with Sarah here because she's serious and she's well well researched and supported. And she also runs uh, with a, an interesting podcast, which I have to say doesn't have quite the production values of yours, um, called Gaslit Nation, which is about really coming back to the beginning of what I said, how if and when Trump goes, what brought him to the White House won't. Um, and, and that's fly over America, isn't it? And what, how it feels and how it's absolutely, left. Absolutely. 
I had, it sounds great, and thank you. I, I had a very disturbing and interesting conversation with a ex-communications director from a red brick university over the last couple of days, Jewish woman, far more practicing than either of us, which wouldn't be hard. <laughs> I have tried to introduce her to bacon and prawns, but she resists my temptations. Anyway, she made the point, just to link back, that one of the things one of the things that enormously worries her is the post-virus blame. And that who is going to be blamed? And the Jewish Chronicle, which is a newspaper I avoid reading, had done some worrying research about 26% of people in the United Kingdom think the Jews are to blame for the virus. And and she says, you know, when will the pitchforks be coming over the hill and what do we need to watch out for? She lives in Derbyshire, so she's used to pitchforks rather than four-wheel drives trying to run you over. But, you know, the theme that she picks up is a strategic theme both in America and here. And it sounds like Sarah is doing the same thing. And it sounds like we should all read it with fear. I think so. took me a couple of days to kind of steal myself for the second part of it. But, yeah. Thank you so much. Now, Hilary, before you go, I'm asking, um, you can stay as long as you like because you're a joy, but I'm asking everybody I'm talking to, uh, I can persuade to spend time talking. Any views about where you live, just in terms of culture, experience, etc. So you live in a town in Gloucestershire. I can be a bit more explicit than that. I live in Cheltenham. Cheltenham? Um, the races, the centre of COVID. Well, let's not get carried away here. Um, um, I live in, as I say, I live in Cheltenham. I live a couple of miles from the race, race course uh, within walking distance. And um, the postcode here was a hotspot at the outset because of the, uh, the races. We had a significant number of COVID infections very early on indeed. The, it's very interesting watching the news, watching where I've lived previously in London and North Wales and seeing different reactions. The situation locally is that the roads are quite quiet. There's a bit more activity in the centre of town now where um, I go occasionally, not very often. People are pretty good at wearing, in fact, very good, uh, wearing masks, especially now since it became mandatory. Local businesses have gone to considerable lengths to make their premises COVID secure. I do occasionally have calls to um, jump out of the way of runners who uh, or joggers who fly down what are relatively empty pavements now. There is inevitably going to be some issue with younger people who now have been kicking their heels. And I'm talking here about mid-late teenagers rather than people desperate to get to the pub and really struggling with some of the physical distancing that's required. But generally speaking, I think that our experience anyway has been of reasonable levels of observance and kind of looking out for each other. One of the great things of the, I say great things, one of the things that's been that struck us um, about the past few months are the numbers of networks of neighbours and organisations who've just sprung up as voluntary sector organisations always do in response to people's needs and not only have been shopping and helping but one of the things that's come out of the work some of the work that I've been doing with our local food bank 
is they're discovering coming across neighbours who have been in need of support for a very long time. Way before all this, yeah. Have just been just been hidden, and 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 that's been quite a, quite a big deal. Brilliant, and I know you've put a lot into the food bank, haven't you? So in terms of time, effort, administrative yeah, organisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interestingly, just just to compare that a little, or rather maybe contrast it a little. As you know, we live uh, uh, backing onto Victoria Park in Hackney. Yeah. On Sunday, there was a delightful bourgeois birthday party for uh, a, a guy probably in his twenties. They brought out only only the bourgeoisie in Hackney could do this. So there were there were trestle tables, which there aren't any trestle tables in the park anymore. So they were brought in tablecloths, lovely food, nice golden yellow and white balloons, wishing them a happy birthday. Forty odd people all enjoying themselves, whooping, making lots of noise, etc. You know, these were not two households, and this was certainly not six <laughs> people. I rang the uh, park rangers, very excited. I've only done that once in 30 years. Said I wondered if they could have a word, maybe turn the noise down and maybe you know deal with the social distancing issues. Fascinating. They dealt with the noise. They turned it down, but they rang me back and said they didn't feel they could deal with the social distancing issues. They were very coy about it, put it that way. So I wrote to Tower Hamlet's council, uh, to the corporate director place. Um, oh, I, assume yeah. that, I assume that wasn't to do with fish. And... Uh, And also to the the parks department, and they acknowledged typical local government. They acknowledged very quickly, but never put a name at the bottom, uh, the name of the person who'd written, and said they passed it back to the Victoria Park Rangers to comment. So I now await a reply. And what I said in my, I hope, constructive email was, just tell me what training you've provided for hard-pressed staff, because it's not an easy thing to do. And for me, what's the escalation procedure? Have you got a relationship with the borough commander so if you needed to get a police officer or two to lend a hand they could do so i await the reply with fascination so very different from uh what sounds like very sensible cheltenham really but like you we don't like being reliant on the good sense of other people to keep everybody safe so you end up taking the steps that you can take to be neither a, a, a recipient of nor a donator of virus, um, and uh, and that's all you can do. That's all you can do. Listen, thank you for those typically wise observations. And you've got to read another book, <laughs> and you've got to do this again. Been a, a real joy both listening to you and for just the recording purposes, being able to see you from a distance. Okay. I send you loads of love, and you too. Good fun, wasn't it? Let me end with a bit of background noise from the park. Nothing obtrusive, but just the thing I was referring to when talking to Hillary. And to say the next podcast, which will come out quite soon, features Bev's son, who was locked down in Jerusalem when he moved there a couple of weeks ago. Part of my attempt to develop some themes around what it's like to experience COVID-19 and the craziness in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. If you want to contribute, just email me at jeremy at talkingterminal.com meantime thanks for listening thankfully you didn't fall asleep for the whole of it but i hope you sleep well